Glad you're with us. Uh, we're, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. I invite you to go ahead and start turning there, and we'll jump in. I will uh, never forget uh, my first day of high school, my freshman year of high school, the very first day. It is a day that lives in infamy in my life uh, as an experience that haunted me, um, at least internal, internally, for pretty much all of my high school existence happened on that first day of school. I, I was probably in between like second and third period. I was rushing back up uh, the steps to head up to where my locker was located to kind of trade off stuff. Uh, but in between classes for my next class, and as I'm trying to make my way quickly uh, up the steps, uh, my toe grabs a hold of one of the steps that I didn't quite lift my leg high enough for, and I just completely fall up the steps, like, all the way down. Like, I actually catch my, caught myself with my hands to keep my face from hitting one of the steps. Uh, you know, like, completely... Uh, fell down. And of course, this was not like a back stairway where there's like nobody around. No, this was like the central, the most central stairway in my high school, right in front of a whole bunch of people, including uh, three of the most popular, most beautiful senior girls in my high school that year. Uh, it, was, it was quite humiliating, and, and I was absolutely mortified. The shame I felt in that moment, I thought I would never outlive, uh, that, that would haunt me forever. It would never leave me. It, it tormented me. I, I honestly just really wanted to just be able to sink through the steps into oblivion and never be seen again. That's what I thought was probably the best option for me in the moment. Uh, in hindsight, it's rather kind of comical and kind of funny to think about, uh, but at the moment, it was anything but uh, a laughing matter. Uh, but it all points to kind of a reality that we, we all experience, right? We all have experiences and encounters with shame. Uh, we all have encounters with guilt uh, that, that we, we face, uh, internally, we feel those things at times so deeply uh, that we feel like we're just going to completely come undone. Uh, sometimes it's silly and embarrassing things that are not really that big of a deal that just kind of, we, we feel embarrassed in the moment and we feel shame and, and we, uh, we just need to learn that high school's not the, uh, the end of our lives. Uh, but, uh, but it's also sometimes more serious, right? Some of those encounters with guilt are far more serious, facing the guilt and the shame that comes from betraying a friend or a spouse, or the guilt and shame of, of causing harm to another human being. Uh, those are encounters that we just can't move past, uh, not on our own. And we suffer from those inner bouts of shame and guilt, and we, we suffer from a conscience that needs to be purified. That's the reality that we see in Hebrews 9 here today, that that, that is our deeper problem. We have, we have a conscience that needs to be purified. But we also see the great solution that, that the Lord provides. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you're not already there, and, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... 
How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, um, you know uh, where we are at today as we come together. And you know what it is that each of us wrestles with internally as it re- relates to our conscience. You know the, the, the feelings of guilt and shame that we wrestle with. You know that reality. Uh, and you know where we're at today. And you meet us. You meet us with hope and grace in your Son, who lived and died and rose to take our guilt and shame, to pay it in full, to cleanse our conscience. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable us to embrace Jesus today in faith if we have not, to experience that. And if we have, Lord, we, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would enable us to believe that, to rest in the freedom that Christ has secured to be free to live and serve the living God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. It's sort of a a very simple and yet profound argument that's being made here, particularly in verses 13 and 14. Uh, The author of Hebrews is kind of very simply in those two verses saying, if this is true, how much more would that be true? That's, that's the argument. It's a very simple argument in many ways, but yet it's incredibly profound what he has to say here. These, these verses are really kind of the core of, I think, the rest of the passage that we're looking at. And what we discover as we mine the depths of this argument is this. We discover our deeper problem, we discover the great solution, and we, we discover the resulting freedom. Uh, that we have because of that solution. First, we, we discover our, our deeper problem. Uh, verse 14 is telling us very plainly that we need to have our consciences purified. You need to have your conscience purified. Specifically, it says we need to have our consciences purified from dead works. Now, that can mean a couple different things here. There's, there's reality that could be a reference just to sin in general, right? Sin is, uh, sin is a, a work that leads to death. 
Uh, those are sins or works that lead to death. Uh, or it could be referring to sort of the empty religious works that we do a lot of the time to try to cover over our shame and guilt, our, our just vain efforts to just try to like, I feel this, I feel this burden, I feel this weight, I'm going to fix it by doing this, right? As a, as a Christian, I, I cheated on my exam this week, so I better get to church on Sunday, uh, you know? Uh, you know, I, I lied to my friend, I better read my Bible every day this week. Just empty kind of works that we try to do to just kind of cover over, mask over the guilt. It could be referring to either one of those, but either way, the point is that you and I, we have a problem with our consciences. We have a problem and they need to be purified, which means they need to be cleansed because they're defiled, they're unclean, they're dirty. The common human experience of dealing with guilt and shame kind of serves as a reality, as evidence of this reality. But where do guilt and shame come from? I'm going to go outside the Bible here for a moment, uh, and we're going to go like back to psychology, psych 101, and we're going to talk a little bit about Sigmund Freud for, for a few moments here. But, but Sigmund Freud uh, believed that human nature is naturally egocentric. And that if human nature was left unchecked, we'd all just kind of be out there wanting things, but we would all be wanting the same things, and therefore we'd just be fighting and killing one another for those same things. Freud then says that the conscience is guilty uh, over selfish and aggressive behavior, right? That it's kind of like this built-in check and balance uh, system to kind of keep us from going too far. It kind of guilt restrains that egocentric behavior to a degree, and that without, that, without guilt, uh, civilization would not be able to exist. It wouldn't be possible. But Freud says that this creates an enormous problem for humanity because guilt is very, very deep, and it permeates everything. Sigmund Freud's far from a believer, but he's not wrong about that. It permeates everything. Guilt runs deep and it permeates everything. You might not think, some of you may not be believers in the room, you might not think and, and identify uh, it with, with terms like guilt and shame, but there's still a reality that you know it's there. There's still a reality you know it's there. It's that sense within you that says, things are not right. I, 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 I don't like how things are with me. Why, why am I not different? Why is life not going better? Freud says, even though most of the time it's not conscious, what's really eating at us is guilt, shame. Sometimes it's very overt. There's something that you've done, that you know you've done, that you know you shouldn't have done. And, and, and you know it's wrong and you just feel horrible about it and you can't get past it. You just can't get past it. You, you feel it. It's very clear. It's very overt. But most of the time, he would say, guilt is covert. It's a little bit more hidden. It, it kind of shows itself as this uneasiness about yourself. Like, I'm not okay. I'm not right. I haven't been what I should be. Can't quite put my finger on it, but I sense that. It's much more covert. Uh, Freud would actually say to someone who would, would argue, hey, you can't make me feel guilty. Nobody makes me feel guilty because I decide what's right and wrong for myself. Uh, you, can't, you just can't put that on me. He would say that if you think you can deal with guilt like that, you're absolutely a fool. 
Because guilt pervades our lives. It permeates everything. It's over. It's under. It's around you. It, it hides itself. It shapeshifts. It's everywhere in your life. And some of you are like, well, yeah, that's great. That's like how many years ago was, was Sigmund Freud? Uh, we, we live in a, a relativistic culture. We've, we've adapted, we've developed, we've grown. Uh, and yet, if you're honest, if you're honest with yourself, you still have those feelings inside of you. That something's not right, that something's wrong with you, and that you're not what you should be. You still have a, a sense of, of condemnation. It may be overt guilt over specific wrongs that you know you shouldn't have done, that you feel are wrong, but, it, but it's also covert at the same time. It, it shows itself in a myriad of ways. Let me, let me help you kind of identify some of it. Why is it that, that some of us, some of you, you work too hard? You work too hard. You just work and you work and you work and you work and you, you tell yourself, hey, if, if I could just get to this place. If I just get to this level, then I'll, I'll, I'll tap out for a moment. I'll rest. But you never do. Like you just keep working and working and working and working. And then when you get to that level, you're like, I got to keep going. Why is that? Why is it that some of you are always exhausted because you're always helping other people and you cannot ever set up healthy boundaries for yourself? You never can do that. You always got to help. And if you don't help, you have to. You got to keep being the one who's helping all the time. On the flip side of both of those, some of you are just flat out lazy. You're just flat out lazy. And even, even that, if you really dig underneath it, may come from a fear of your deficiencies being exposed. Or from a fear that if you actually tried to help, you would let someone down. And you're confident that you would. Why is it that some of you will never ever confront a brother and sister or sister in sin, even though you should? And you know you should. And why is it that some of you are always confronting, confronting others, even though you shouldn't? Because your self-righteousness, which is what? A mask that you wear to make yourself feel better about yourself in comparison to others, to hide your guilt. Why is it that some of you are so afraid of letting anybody see what you are really like that you won't commit to anything? You won't actually open up and be vulnerable and enter in. Why is it that some of you are, are so concerned about your looks that even gaining a few pounds just devastates you? Right? All of those, those are examples of covert guilt that is, is within us, that we are all dealing with, that we're all facing. A sense that something's wrong with me, I have to do something about it. And, and to be honest, it's, it's absolutely shaping your life. It's absolutely leading you to do all sorts of dead works to try to fix yourself. But those dead works will never do the trick. They'll never do the trick. But there's more of the problem, right? You could kind of argue from a sense that, that these feelings of guilt and condemnation, overt, covert, whatever they may be, they're merely subjective, 
right? They're just how you are experiencing things, how you are interpreting things. But maybe that's just you. It's not really your reality. And so you just need to kind of change your perspective. And this is where we would part ways with Sigmund Freud because he probably would encourage you down that road. But verse 13 shows us that it can't just be subjective, that it's not just our consciences that need purification, but it's also our flesh. And even more, it plainly refers to us as defiled persons, not subjectively, but objectively. We are defiled persons. That is what we are. Do you know what that is, defiled persons? That is the language of Leviticus, the book of the Bible where all well-intentioned Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, Because, Because Leviticus is is all about, uh, you know, here's all this myriad of ways that you can be unclean, and here are all these instructions about how to be cleansed, how to defile persons that would be sprinkled and cleansed in all these different ways. A lot of strange stuff for most of us, and, you know, we start out great intentions in Genesis, Exodus, we're, okay, you lost me, right? Uh, a lot, for most of us, it seems really strange when we get in Leviticus, but it's all symbolic. It's all symbolic of something very important that we're going to get to in just a moment. But, but in another sense, we, we do get it. We do totally get it, right? Why is, we, we get why cleanliness is important. Do we not? I mean, yeah, you do. Because why is it when you're about to go out or you're about to go to work and, and then you get something on your shirt, you go change your shirt, right? Why is it that before you have some important appointment, uh, you shower, and you brush your teeth, and you use mouthwash the whole nine, right? Why, why, is, why do you do that? The reason is because we all know what it's like to be standing there with someone who smells bad. And if you don't, wait till you have children, right? And you're like, you know, I'm a gender stereotype, especially little boys who will not refuse to take a shower. Uh, it's like, child, Go clean yourself. You smell hideous. Um, maybe that's not it, but, but most of us also know how repugnant it is to go to the trash dumpster on the hottest day of the summer, right? And you're taking that trash out, and the, your goal is to get that bag of trash into that container outside as quickly as possible without breathing, uh, to not inhale any of the hideous odors that are kind of emanating from the trash heap there. Uh, Your goal is just to get out as quickly as possible. It's absolutely detestable. Do you see the symbolism? Your sin and your selfishness is utterly detestable to God. It smells bad. It's hideous. It is repugnant. It's worse than the worst coffee breath or B.O., or the grossest dirty diaper-infested trash can outside on the hottest day of the year. God is totally repulsed by your sin, just as you are by all of those forms of uncleanness that I I just mentioned. But but what that means is that your guilt is, is not just subjective, it is objective. It is also objective. 
Sin in your life doesn't just mean that you feel guilty. It means that you are guilty. You are guilty. It means not only do you need to be reconciled to God, but God needs to be reconciled to you because you and I, we are unfit to be in his presence and he cannot bear our uncleanness in his. He's perfectly holy, totally pure, and we are defiled, unclean, detestable, repugnant before him. He's repulsed by us because of what he can see and what he can smell on us. All the focus in Leviticus on, on physical cleanliness was, was trying to, to, to get across the fact that there's a spiritual uncleanness that we have to deal with. And it runs to the depths of you and it permeates everything. And worst of all, it will not let you go. Your conscience understands that you are defiled by your sin. And when your conscience senses that something is wrong, that, that something's off, something needs fixing, it, it just will, it will not let you go. It's, it's like this uh, kind of barrier within you, this, uh, this sense of, of internally, you, you, you either got to deal with this, it's got to be paid for, it's got to have a ruling of some sort. When your conscience, conscience senses guilt and shame, it, it chases you and punishes you internally until either what you're feeling guilty about is shown to be not truly guilty, right? It's something that you, it's a false guilt, something you shouldn't feel guilty about. And so you can be released from that. Or if it's true guilt, until that guilt has been fully paid for, it will not let you go. But your conscience will only respond to a ruling on that, which means that you're always waiting for someone or something outside of you to give you that ruling, which is the problem of living in a culture like ours that's so relativistic, where it's all about, I determine for myself what, what is good, what's not good, what's right, what's wrong. Well, there's nothing on the outside in that kind of mindset that's ever gonna validate. I mean, actually tell me, yes, you're right, that is right. Or no, you're wrong, that is wrong. Some of you probably think that you know, to bring God in is going to make guilt worse, right? God's just going to, he's going to punish you and make you feel worse for your guilt. But in reality, God and his word, they actually provide a clear path forward because it provides that outside clear voice standard to, to give you clarity about what is false guilt, what is true guilt. Like some of you, maybe you were raised in a home where your parents told you, you got to be successful, and here's what successful means. It means you need to make a bunch of money. But you're not making a bunch of money. Is that real guilt? Is that true guilt? You feel guilty about it. Is it true? Is it false? Well, you can go to God and his word. And what does God's word say? Is God's word say people will be judged by how successful and how wealthy they are? No. It says people will be judged by their character. That's a false guilt. So you take what God has to say in his word about that and you, you tell your guilt, your conscience, right? That's not true. Shut up. Leave me alone. I'm not going to listen to that. It's a false guilt. But what if you're feeling guilty because you've lied to a friend and you've been cruel to them behind their back? You go to God's word and it very plainly says, lying is wrong. Gossip and slander are wrong. 
Hating someone is equivalent of murdering them in your heart. It's wrong. You are to love others. It's true guilt. And you must bear the burden of that guilt before you can get rid of it. But what are you, how do you do that? How do you deal? How do you ever get beyond that true guilt? And that's where the author, he tells us about the great solution here. We see that great solution very plainly in verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Again, we, we have a problem, both in the sense that uh, because of our sin, because of our guilt, we, we need to be reconciled to God, and God needs to be reconciled to us. It's kind of on the both, both sides. So what that means, because we need to be reconciled to God, God needs to be reconciled to us, we need a mediator, a priest, who can go between us and, 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 and bring us together in, in reconciliation. And in order to deal with both sides of that rift, that, that chasm that has been created by our sin, this high priest is going to need to be someone who is both God and human. He's going to need to be God and human. And Jesus is exactly that. Scriptures tell us this. Hebrews tells us this back in chapter two, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. And these verses are, again, kind of contrasting what we talked about last week, the work of the Levitical high priest on the day of atonement with the work of Christ for our eternal redemption. Um, and we got into some of that last week. But on the day of the atonement, right, the Jewish high priest, he went into the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. This was repeated every single year, one day a year, every single year. We talked about all the, the preparation that went into the day of atonement last week, right? There's a, you know, all the ceremonial preparation involved just for this one day every year. Uh, the high priest put out a week in advance into seclusion. The night before, he spends reading the word and prayer, seeking to purify his own soul. Uh, the repeated day of washings and clothing himself repeatedly in pure white linen, going in repeatedly to offer sacrifices for himself, for all the priests, for all the people. There are all these steps, all this guilt, all this defilement that must be dealt with every step of the way. But then it's got to be repeated every year, year after year after year after year, never ever securing a purified conscience, unable to secure a purified conscience. But then here comes Jesus, our great high priest who enters the most holy place, not in the tabernacle, but in the very presence of God in heaven. Not by the blood of of bulls and goats, but by his own blood he comes in to make payment for our sins. Not every year, once for all, he secures eternal redemption. Christ's sacrifice was, was not to be repeated because it achieved in that moment at the cross complete and eternal redemption. And it's able to offer to us 
a purified conscience. The author of Hebrews in this passage is, is seeking to help us not only understand what Christ has done but, and, uh, to save us, but how he did it. Um, how he did it. The reason being that understanding how Jesus achieves our redemption more fully demonstrates the glory of God. We cannot fully appreciate or give appropriate honor and worship to God for what he's done until we, we understand the cost, what it cost to achieve our salvation. And that's what we see in these biblical illustrations in the, the latter part of the passage in verses 16 through 22, kind of the illustrations referring back to the inauguration of the covenant of Moses and the people and that in the book of Exodus. And then, of course, the inauguration of the tabernacle and the kind of the, uh, the anointing of that, uh, the sprinkling of blood and all those situations. We're pointed in those verses uh, to those things, right? That where Moses sprinkled the people, the inauguration of the old covenant with the blood of animals that signified that the punishment for covenant disobedience was death, blood. But the blood of animals also signified to the people God's desire and willingness to provide a substitute to stand in the place of sinful people. Forgiveness We're told very plainly, verse 22, forgiveness was only possible by the shedding of blood. Why is blood so important? I mean, this sounds really barbaric, archaic. What is is all this about blood? Well, God tells his people in the Old Testament, in your favorite book of Leviticus, that life is in the blood. Life is located in the blood. And you, you don't have to study anatomy and physiology to understand that that's true, right? Without blood, there is no life. If your, your body runs out of blood, you're not living anymore. The just penalty for sin is death. And the demand for a sinner's death and payment for his or her sin is in essence the, sin, the same as the demand for that sinner's blood, And the animals used in the old covenant sacrifices, they served as this vivid illustration and reminder of the costliness of sin. Sin demands payment in blood. It it demands death. The just penalty is death. Yet God has graciously made a way through substitutionary blood sacrifices to atone for sin. But the blood of animals could really only serve as an illustration of the costliness of sin and and only as a demonstration of God's desire to provide a a substitute to pay for our sins in our place. The blood of bulls and goats would never truly be enough to pay for our debt and secure our redemption from sin and purify our consciences from guilt and shame. Levitical priests, the sacrificial system, the day of the atonement, uh, it was all meant to point us forward to Christ, to Jesus, to the day when our great high priest would come and offer himself as our substitute, paying our debt of sin in full by his own blood. In contrast to the day of atonement, Jesus comes as our great high priest. And when the high priest on the day of atonement, right, was going through all that, the people of Israel, they're praying for him. 
They're watching him as he's going in and out, doing all these things. Like they're on the edge of their seat, praying, supporting. But Jesus comes as our great high priest. And on the night before he was to be offered, uh, to offer himself in our place, he, he spent the night in prayer. And everyone betrayed him. Nobody prayed for him. Nobody prayed with him. Nobody supported him all night. And he went to his death. As he went to his death, Jesus wasn't clothed in beautiful garments of perfect, fine, white linen, but he was rather stripped naked. He wasn't bathed, but rather he was spit upon. You see what Jesus was doing as he went to his cross for you? At the cross, Jesus was taking all of your filth upon himself so that you could get all of his righteousness. He was securing for you an eternal redemption. Once for all, not by the blood of goats and bulls, but rather, as verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the only solution for our guilt, for our subjective guilt, for our objective guilt. Only the blood of Christ will do. And thank God, that's exactly what God in the person and work of Christ gave for us. That's what Christ, through the Spirit, offered for us. See the Trinitarian work there. All persons involved in what Christ has done. Jesus has offered himself without blemish once for all to cleanse our conscience if we will but turn to him in faith and receive it as a gift. If we will simply put our hope and trust in him and not in ourselves, not in our dead works, not in our efforts, but in his finished work, we put our hope, our trust. It's the only way. It's the only way, the only solution for our deeper problem. But it doesn't stop there. We're also pointed to the resulting freedom. And this is, is where it's powerfully personal if you, if you grasp it. Think about it. Among the disciples of Jesus, you have Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus. We know that, right? Peter betrayed Jesus. And we know that. Because of what both Peter and Judas did, Jesus died. They abandoned him. They betrayed him. And as a result, for both of them, their consciences were just eating them alive. What happened with Judas? He couldn't get past it. It utterly consumed him until he killed himself. He couldn't be free of it. Well, what happened to Peter? He went on to become one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, a pillar of the church. Peter, who betrayed Jesus. What's the difference? They were both just 
devastated in their guilt. But the secret is found in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus says to Peter, I've prayed for you. Do you know what that means? That's Jesus saying, I'm your high priest. I'm your high priest. I've interceded for you. That's why Peter got through it. Because of Jesus. Because Jesus was his high priest. The guilt was put aside because Jesus took it for him and paid for it in his own blood. The Apostle Paul, a religious zealot, killing Christians. But at some point, his guilt confronted him. Right? Romans 7, he talks about the reality that, that at some point in his life, the law kind of confronts, confronts him and came at him, and he died feeling the weight of his sin, the weight of his guilt. He felt under great conviction. His conscience was killing him. Yet, you read Romans 7, and Romans 7 goes right into Romans 8, where Romans 8, 1, where he says, the same guy, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where does that come from? How is he able to do that? Well, you go to the end of Romans 8, and he tells you, Romans 8, 33 to 35, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's saying, I have a high priest. He stepped in. He took my place. He justifies me. Nothing can condemn me because he's paid my debt in full. When you grasp this, it's deeply personal. Jesus has paid for your sins. Christian, he's paid for your sins. He's prayed for you. He's continuing to pray for you, seated at the right hand of God. He's become your mediator, your high priest, who has secured your redemption and paid your debt in full. And by that, he sets you free from guilt and shame. He sets you free to own your wrong, to own your sin, to confess it and know that it does not define you, but it has been paid for by the blood of Christ. To be free, he purifies your conscience. And he frees you to serve the living God. That's what's so amazing is that in, in many ways, Christ frees us to do some of the things that many of us in our attempts to be kind of covering over our, our sin by our own works, some of, the, some of the very same works that we would do as a vain attempt to kind of pay our debt and cover over our sin, Christ frees us to do them. Now joyfully and freely, not under compulsion, not because we have to, but because we, we get to, right? Reading God's word becomes a get to, not a have to. I get 
to know Christ more, as I dig into his word, I get to rest under these promises and let them speak and minister to my heart. I don't have to, I get to. Prayer becomes a get to, not a have to. I get to wake up and spend time with the Lord, resting in his grace, knowing as I pray to him, I am your beloved child. And just feel the Spirit, the Father, embracing me in that. It's a get-to, not a have-to. It's a get-to. Serving others becomes a get-to, not a have-to. I'm not doing this so I pay for what I did wrong yesterday. I get to bless others. Christ is actually going to use a sinner like me, like you, to bless someone else. What a joy that he would do that. Telling others about the hope we have in Christ, sharing the gospel becomes a get-to, not a have-to. Not some task you got to check off on your list of things I have to do to be a good Christian. But I get to. And why would you not want to? He's cleansed your conscience. Why would you not want to invite others to know the freedom that he has welcomed you into? It becomes a get-to, not a have-to. Living in community as the people of God becomes a get-to, not a have-to. Not events to attend, but a joyful people I belong to who will encourage me, who will keep pointing me back to Jesus and the truth of who I am in light of his finished work on the cross. I get to, not a have to. Jesus frees you to enjoy God and rest in the security of your future inheritance in him. And he frees you to live your life in, in service of the living God. Not because you have to, but, but you get to. Not as a way to pay him back, because it's your very joy. It's your very joy. Here's the point. Jesus loves you. He's your great high priest who has stepped in your place and he can redeem your past no matter what your past is, no matter what you've walked through. He can cleanse your heart of any stain, any stain. There is not a person in this room who is not, has not been affected by guilt. Not a one of us. Not one. And yet Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is greater than any sense of condemnation that you have. Let his sacrifice cleanse your conscience and purify you to live for and serve the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you've given us this wonderful solution to our deep, deepest problem. Our sin and the guilt and shame that plagues our consciences. Jesus, we thank you that you did not only secure a remedy for our subjective guilt, but that you turned aside and satisfied our objective guilt as well. Thank you for paying our penalty. Thank you for taking the punishment that we deserve so that now God is reconciled to us and we can be reconciled to God. Holy Spirit, make us a people who are not trying to pay our debt of sin and guilt on our own by our own works, but but a people who live in freedom, the freedom of Christ's finished work, Make us a people who joyfully live to serve you because Jesus is our great high priest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.